0: Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast, the week of Friday, December 13th, 2019. I'm here with George Edelman. I'm Charles Hain, and we're going to be talking about the biggest streaming hit of the year, The Mandalorian. We are going to be talking about Frame.io coming for the iPad, and then we have an Ask No Film School question about distributing shorts, which, honestly, I have a different answer for than I would have even five years ago. So, all of that, this week on the No Film School podcast. So the first story on the No Film School podcast this week is, is the Mandalorian true HDR? So let's define a couple of terms here first. HDR refers to high dynamic range, right? So for a long time with televisions, we were always really excited by more resolution. We went from standard D to HD, and that was like from 500 pixels across to 2,000 pixels across. And then all of a sudden we bumped up to 4K, which is like 4,000 pixels across. More resolution means you don't see the pixels as much. However, they all sort of stayed at the same brightness range. So you could only have sort of, you know, the darkest darks to the brightest brights could only be so far apart. And then somebody realized instead of pushing us towards more resolution, uh, manufacturers uh, pushed by Dolby and a whole bunch of other people started working on something called HDR, high dynamic range, uh, like Some ungodly percentage of all TVs shipping now have HDR. The TV I bought for $500 has HDR built in. So HDR is a very common home feature where this is one of those weird – HDR is one of those weird things where usually what happens is filmmakers have a tool first and then we have to wait like five to ten years for like the home market to catch up. Like we were all shooting HD ten years before anyone I knew had an HD TV – We were all shooting movies in 3D and then no one ever bought home 3D TVs because that's dumb. Um, But HDR uh, is a thing where it's really sort of led backwards where the TV technology is there to have these huge brightness ranges, to have much bigger brightness ranges from the darkest darks to the brightest brights than you would ever have had before. And it's really something where like many, many TVs have it. And yet, the post workflow hasn't super caught up. I still work on lots of projects that finish standard dynamic range. I know a lot of projects are now high dynamic range, but Variety just had a really interesting article about how uh, Netflix, I think it was this year, laid out, uh, we only take HDR now. And the DPs of all these Netflix shows were like surprised, confused. They were like, no, we're not ready. So, this is one of those weird situations where like the final step is there, the TVs can show HDR. But filmmakers aren't necessarily catching up. And there's a lot of reasons why filmmakers aren't necessarily catching up. Uh, There's all of these HDR formats that compete with each other. So you can't, you know, do you master to all the different formats? Can you guarantee that the TVs are going to be properly set up? There's also the whole aspect of like, you know, monitoring on set, which is a big deal with HDR is, you know, it's really hard to see HDR images standing outside in the hot sun. With a in video village, you know, so if you're doing a shoot that's on a stage and you can build a really nice video village with a beautiful HDR monitor, that's one thing. But it's there's a whole lot of things that need to come together to make HDR work. And like, I don't think indie features are going to be delivering HDR that commonly in the next year or two. Obviously, all the big studio pictures are and all the big studio streamers are. But even some of the Netflix DPs were like, wait a minute, hold on. I didn't know I had to deliver this HDR uh and that's this year so we're in an interesting place with HDR
1: i have a funny just just side thing before we move forward to the applications to the mandalorian uh i just think it's funny because i i assume that a lot of people see HDR and think it's something connected to HD the, i don't think the, that's
0: an accident i think that's <laughs> i think that's branding baby
1: <laughs> but it's like it's it's not the same thing
0: It is not the same thing. It is high dynamic range. And mostly, to be honest, the way most filmmakers tend to use it is it's extra room in the highlights. So they tend to keep most of the essential picture information in sort of the same brightness range. Not every filmmaker does this, but most. And then what they do is, if you have a really high bright highlight, like a cool lens flare or a nice reflection or a bright white element in frame, then you take that information and you put it up there in those super high highlights. So you get these much brighter reflections on things than you ever would before. You get these sort of different images with these higher highlights Not every filmmaker does that. Some people stretch all their picture information over the whole thing. But I think a lot of people tend to keep, like, you try and keep your flesh tones back in the normal range. And then, you know, if there's like a white car in the hot sun, you let that really clip out up into that HDR range. So how is this relevant to The Mandalorian? So Ars Technica, which is a blog I read and enjoy, uh, ran an article that I disagree with (laughs) Um, where – basically accused the mandalorian of not being true hdr and there's two things i question about the article one is it analyzed a bunch of youtube clips of the mandalorian and like yes youtube can do hdr so like that is a thing um but like i don't know that H youtube sourcing because like you know i think it's youtube promo clips Who knows if those are actual Mandalorian clips or they got given to the marketing department. Like maybe the real film is HDR and marketing is not HDR. No offense marketing at Disney. But like who knows? Like there's so many ways in which that could have gotten stepped on that I don't trust YouTube clips personally. Um, I wish they'd analyzed clips from Disney Plus. Although obviously it's much harder to get clips from Disney Plus and bring it into an application where you can bring up a waveform or something to really analyze the video. But the other issue I have is the Ars Technica article makes the argument that HDR allows you to have this huge brightness range. And I'm just going to say, and this is not real, but I'm just going to say this for the sake of the argument, that original SDR was one to one hundred. It was zero to one hundred, and HDR is one to ten thousand. That's not actually what it is, but whatever. We're going to use that for argument. And because it's not using the full range of 0 to 10,000, it's not actually HDR. It's a lie. I'm exaggerating for internet points, the um, the Ars Technica argument. But, like, you know, I don't think we are obligated to use everything that the technical format allows. I did a presentation a little while ago, and one of my favorite movies, you know, there's this advice in color grading Uh, that I think is shitty advice and I try never to give it, which is like, um, well, (laughs) you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to sit down and you want to stretch your shadows down to zero and you want to stretch your highlights up to 100. And, um, you know, that's like very good color grading, like in the 90s, like I, I need to make broadcast television advice, but it's not creative advice. So like, you know, and in this presentation, I bring in a bunch of clips from a wonderful movie, Lost in Translation, beautiful movie. And you bring them into any color grading software and the range is from like 30 to 60. All of the picture information in Lost in Translation is from like 30 to 60, maybe 65. That's it. That's the range they chose to use for their artistic purposes in that film. That's a very low-contrast film. The shadows aren't very black. The highlights aren't very white. But as you watch the film, especially as you watch it in the theater, you're immersed in its world, and it doesn't look murky. It doesn't look weird. It's just a universe that you're built in that's very creamy and very pleasing and sort of magical. And, you know, and then in that presentation, I always... um I always show, like, all right, so I'm going to take this the final still of Lost in Translation where Bob is hugging her and whispering in her ear, and I'm like, all right, let's take our shadows to zero, and let's take our highlights to 100, and it looks like total screaming garbage. It just looks like (laughs) 90s, like, it just just looks like early age, it looks like the Phantom Menace. And you're like, all right, well, you know, you don't have to use all the range available to you. We have this giant palette. But I'm never gonna get mad. I'm never gonna get mad at a painter for not using all the colors. I'm never gonna walk up to Mark Rothko and be like, "This painting only has red in it. Where's the blue and the green? You have all these colors. Why didn't you use them all?" Um, also, we teach at the same school. Mark Rothko used to teach at Brooklyn College. I just found that out. Um, although he's dead, so he's not going to be at like faculty meetings. Um, <laughs> but you know, I don't think we are obligated. I don't think not using your entire palette makes your work fake. And so I, I object to the idea that uh, just because they're not using the entire palette, it is a fake thing. I also don't think you're obligated to use the whole palette in every scene. For instance, let's say there was an entire TV show mastered in HDR, and they used those HDR highlights twice. There were two big story moments, and they wanted to use the HDR highlights in those moments in no other moment. I think that's a legitimate artistic decision you want to choreograph your technical work in conjunction with the story so obviously the big thing everybody talks about mandalorian is baby yoda there's nothing about baby yoda that needs baby yoda to be in hdr but let's say there was a moment where baby yoda vomited a rainbow that would be very new internet meets old internet and if you wanted to save your hdr for just that one moment where baby yoda vomited rainbows totally legitimate choice complete respect no criticism from this guy.
1: I wonder if and I I'm with you. Like I mean I think your argument is is sound and uh I can't imagine why we would demand that on en- that every creative use all the extremes available to them to tell their stories or create their visual work. I wonder if it's possible that they and i haven't read the full ars technica piece but i wonder if there is a um evidence that they did not ever go out of the range of the sdr range uh, the standard dynamic range i wonder if it's is is it the yeah, take that's was my more question. that it was
0: a marketing problem that disney was deliberately that was disney was lying and saying it was hdr as a marketing thing With the idea being that the filmmakers never intended it to be HDR. And the issue I also have with that is, frankly, A, I don't think you need to use HDR to get people to watch The Mandalorian. (laughs) And B, I don't know that anyone out there, like, I don't think, I don't think any executive at Disney is thinking we really need to slap HDR on this. Like, it's just not something that I think is a big marketing pull for people. No, no. I'm sure we will hear about it on Twitter. If people are like, I only watch HCR content and I deliberately seek it out, but like, I don't. I have an HDR seems... TV. I enjoy it when it appears, but I don't need it.
1: Yeah, I I think that that, that is such a that is such a niche within a niche. Um, and there is yeah, there is simply no way that the people behind the Mandalorian or at Disney think that that will move the needle one way or another. Meaning, yeah, because yeah. that thing is not made for people who care about those things. That. That show is made for as many people on this earth as possible. And most of the people on this earth do not even know what HDR means. There might be 12 people
0: on earth who are like, I only watch HDR and nothing else. Those 12 people likely were going to watch the Mandalorian anyway. So I just don't think it's like a lie on any marketing person's fault. Um... The, the exception would be if they had done a big thing about it, right? Like when James Cameron did Avatar in 3D, mm, yeah. he made so many. He pushed the theaters to do it. He brokered that deal for the theaters to get projectors, and he made all those videos, and he made the behind-the-scenes content, and he gave all those interviews. And then if it turned out Avatar wasn't in 3D, if you showed up and you put on the glasses and it wasn't really 3D, that would be some fucking bullshit. But yes. I don't like. I didn't get the sense. The only people I really feel strongly pushing HDR on Netflix – And even Netflix, I don't think they're doing it for marketing reasons. I think Netflix is doing it for future-proofing reasons. I think Netflix thinks it Mm. is the future, and Netflix very much wants all of the productions they are investing in to be future-compliant as quickly as possible, I suspect, to maximize the time in which they can generate revenue.
1: I think it's cool that this is something that streamers are considering and trying to expand the palette into as soon as possible and push the creatives to use the full range. And I think that that'll create looks that we haven't seen before at home. And I think that that's all to be encouraged and excited about. But I also would say you can like your, your, um, your lost in translation talk sounds amazing. And I think that there are just so many examples of things that use Limited range, less tools that are excellent in different ways. And I mean, I would just say there's a whole like culture of of chopping up the Mandalorian into standard deaf VHS looking 90s styled credit sequences. Like people don't people want to mess around with medium and like play with it. They're not picky about it being. I mean, we're talking about a Star Wars show. There's a whole thing of people who went back. Got the original release laser discs, put them on, uh, like ripped them, updated things without changing all the special edition stuff that Lucasfilm had since done, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? There's like a, there's a pure, there's a, there's a fixed, but, but faithful to the original images and sound. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's multiple people
0: who've attempted to create as closely as possible what people the would have seen in 1977. And right. I, I kind of love them for it. I kind of respect them for it. Uh, it. It's also really fascinating. When I was at USC, uh, they show you, in one of the classes, they showed the first reel of the original Star Wars because they have it in the archive. Yes. They have the 77 Star Wars.
1: So and that is, uh, my friend who also went to USC, uh, my friends who also went to USC, I, that is one of my favorite film school stories is when people talk about seeing that. And, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the where where this story is going is that it's about the sound, right?
0: Yeah, it <laughs> like is all about – well, it's taught the sound designer who's currently, I think, lead sound engineer or Apple genius or whatever for sound Tom Linson Holman at Apple, uh, he was at uh he did sound for Lucas in all of the eighties and nineties, and he shows the opening reel uh and shows you multiple like multiple layers of what is going on in the soundtrack. And it's the original reel from 77, which I believe only is able to be shown at USC. I think they have an archive copy. And I think their deal yeah. with Lucas is that they can show it on campus, but it doesn't get to travel, which is why all of the Star Wars fanatics, who I kind of respect, rip the blue, rip the Laserdisc versions, because the Laserdisc versions were the highest quality version you could get before the 1997 Lucas started messing with everything process. Um, yes. So it's all yeah, I mean it's yeah, it's really interesting. I bet but I bet on the other end of the spectrum there's somebody out there who's taking that laser disc and trying to master an HDR out of it and is trying yeah. to guess at what highlights Lucas. No, that's would what have I was pushed. saying. There are there yeah.
1: are people, there are people who have done that. They have tried to upgrade the yeah. original footage. and Not the original footage, the original what do you want to call it? Yes, the Laser Disc. The one that was given out to people that was the story as it was told in the theaters in 1977 without Han shooting second, whatever. And without A New Hope. Pe- it doesn't even say Episode Four A New Hope. It just right, opened right. a long time ago the, in
0: a galaxy far, far away. That's it.
1: Yes. Tr- people have been trying to get that version of the movie into the most modern, upgraded look in terms of color. So, like, all right, so I got a pitch.
0: A whole bunch of Star Wars fanatics break into the USC archives, <laughs> do a 4K a... scan, and get the film back before Lucas catches on.
1: There is a uh, any executive there... listening. Do we have studio executive listeners? Maybe we don't. There's a There's a There's a uh, standard def DVD. Like There's a that came out that has the the original A New Hope that you can. Oh, watch. really? But. But it's standard death, and the quality is bad. And, and when they re-released in 96 or 97 or whenever it was, they cleaned everything up, right? So yeah. the special edition has this, like, cleaned up. They crushed the blacks. They did all kinds. It's a whole different... Like, if you do a side-by-side, it's it's very different looking.
0: Well, also, what's funny for me is so many of the things I miss so much about... Like, I miss the little um, blurry spot under the speeder
1: Yeah. Because uh, that was like a...
0: Yeah, that was like a signature thing for me when I was watching it when I was a kid, that like blurry spot. And, uh, you know, they always clean it up, and I get why they clean it up, but I miss that. Um, Where the wheels were? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Back to The Mandalorian really quick. This show has become, because we're going to kind of segue into, this is becoming the big thing. It is the big thing. Uh, It topped Stranger Things. And I think it's interesting to think about... Wait a minute.
0: Before we go further, how do we know it topped Stranger Things? Because there's it, no numbers from Netflix. So yeah, is it just social? It must be like social mem- mentions or it must be like, there must be some sort of like public mind share way it's being measured, like the number of memes generated or something. Because who it can't is, be numbers. Netflix doesn't yes. give numbers.
1: That's a great question. I don't know who is making this, cl- what this claim is on, but I've seen it reported in multiple places. But I actually don't know what, it's, what it, data it's reporting. So that's a good question. We should get on that. Or someone tweet at us, or or comment at us about what, if you know. Um, obviously, meme wise, it's going crazy. But I, I don't know what, uh, I don't know what metric they're using to measure its success over Stranger Things. That's a good point. Um, either way, it's it's a huge deal, and I think that it's you know star wars for one so every time a new star wars thing happens numbers get you know hit new highs um and this first live action star wars series is a big deal and disney plus is a big deal and all of those things are rolled into it but i also think that the way they have handled this from a story standpoint is extremely clever especially when you compare it against a lot of the other attempts to continue to relaunch and reinvent star wars because they've really pushed it adjacent they've made it star wars adjacent in a way that feels uh connected but you don't have to deal with any of the emotions the really strong emotions associated with the existing story, the thing that people have seen and loved for all these years, the attachments they have, the problems they're going to have. This is kind of it's carving its own path. And by the way, it's like, you know, I, I made a joke to somebody. I feel like this show is Bounty Law, the, the fake show within the <laughs> world of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because it feels like an extremely and I don't say this to be dismissive of it at all. But an extremely basic, old school TV western. It's really like, it's it's just covering those bases every episode, and it's doing it in Star Wars clothing. But that that like, I feel like the the creative um, brain trust behind this wanted to stay close to something simple and repeatable and tried and true and there's some serious like samurai movie uh references as well which also ties into like the legacy of the western and westerns of that era and there's just a lot going on that like um connects to to star wars source material yojimbo etc and i just feel that they did all of that so carefully and they've proceeded so cautiously with such minimal you know I mean, I'm just thinking about the way the prequel movies and the sequel movies, they there's so much packed into those things and so much reference and so much of the history of the universe of Star Wars and, and Easter eggs that it becomes its own, it trips over itself uh, inevitably. And I think that they did a great job avoiding that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very impressed with how carefully they've navigated this and managed to create it, a new obsession and they have they've created a legitimate new fan obsession with the baby yoda thing that i don't think any star wars to this point i mean they've certainly tried jar jar binks was an attempt uh bb8 is an attempt there's been efforts to create that and they 100 got it um and i'm impressed
0: you know it's funny so i don't remember if this was a no film school thing or not but i remember when jj abrams first landed the job doing the Star Wars, the final trilogy. And there was this viral video that went around where this guy argued for what he thought the movies should be. And I remember yes, a lot. Yes, the Western, I mean, yes. Yeah, and it's funny because what I really remember from that time was it was one of the first times where I realized, where I really started to see how toxic the internet was, because so many people yes. were like, what the fuck is your problem? And why are you telling these people what to say? And like, what does this idiot think he knows? But like, I actually agreed a lot, a lot with that original filmmaker's arguments about like, what Lucas tried to do with the prequel trilogy was he tried to take it from the country to the city. He tried to take it from the edge of civilization into the heart of civilization because he was interested in the whole world and he was like, all right, I've done the edge. Now I want to do the heart. Which, look, I get respect. Um, And I still, the Topher Grace cut of the prequels, I will someday watch because I'm very curious about it. However, (laughs) what is really interesting to me is how much The Mandalorian doesn't necessarily... Hit all the beats of that original uh, viral video from five or six or seven years ago, which I'm sure I saw in film school at the time. But it really does hit at some of those, like, you know, the tone, the world, the setting things that we all love about the original trilogy. And that's what's so interesting about, I mean, we weren't going to talk about this, but we should talk about it, about the Ghostbusters Afterlife trailer, which dropped, which is that they have moved from the, like, look. We all know New York is the center of the universe. They've moved from the center of the universe, New York, in the '80s, and it is now a rural movie.
1: It connects. Uh, it connects in an interesting way to the the course of Star Wars recently. But um, yeah, just from the the craft standpoint, there's an aspect of um, there's an aspect of the Mandalorian that I think is worth looking at. Um, it again, it keeps it very simple. And it almost, I told a friend of mine, it almost reminds me of some of what you're taught in a film school or when you're doing like a thesis film or like there's extended sequences of silence. There's usually each episode has one important choice and some stakes that are set up. They really didn't try to make a complicated arc per story. And I think that, has come under, it's come under some criticism from some corners for that, for being somewhat sparse. But I also think that's how they've protected against some of just the backlash. We've seen, like you said, the internet and Star Wars has sort of been a flashpoint for it over the last 20 years. But the internet is a, and fan culture is an extremely like dangerous minefield to, to walk through. And I feel like if you're thinking about this from a creative standpoint even if you're not making a Star Wars TV show, The Mandalorian really keeps it simple and it stays out of its own way. And I think there's something to really take away from that. Like you can tell a story about a character who doesn't have a face and you can read emotions based on what's happening around that character and how you cut to that character and what you show before you cut to that. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. There are some really like good fundamental storytelling techniques going on in that show that I think are effective. Without us, without, um, without getting too, there's not too much dialogue. There's, there was an episode of that show where there was not a single human face, which I think is like about as close to the the intent of George Lucas probably as you can get. But it's like, there are so many ways that the show is um, keeping it simple and visual and, you know, telling its story without, sometimes without too much action too.
0: Which is interesting to hear you talk about how simple they're keeping it, because on the flip side, it's the most technically sophisticated show shooting right now. Literally, the the entire stage is this massive stage in Marina del Rey, so it's shot in L.A., but they're live compositing everything. There's giant video walls, which let them actually, in some ways... Make movies a little bit more like we used to make movies where you're like, you're on location and you're like, I'm looking at a thing live in camera and I'm making decisions based on that. As opposed to a big green screen shoot where you're always talking to the VFX team, talking to the supervisor, trying to figure out, trying to imagine, looking at a live comp, but it's on a little laptop. It's not a live comp and a laptop. They are literally surrounded by giant, incredibly expensive. Nobody has done anything like it what they're doing it's on the awesome. mandalorian is insane
1: and i think that the the two things make sense right so if you're going to go so far in the complicated direction in terms of your production and and the tools it makes sense to try and keep it simple as an investment right in in other ways and i think that that's that's probably a little bit where uh, in the prequels lucas went and you know bless him for doing it like he went way too he tried to do way too much in way too many different directions creatively story-wise like it's just all it's far reaching and all over the place but i bet he you know he has a good very good relationship with david Filoni. i think that's how you pronounce it who's the one of the key creatives and ep's on mandalorian and he did that clone wars tv show and i think that lucas probably loves what they're doing with this show like the way they're shooting it and pushing the boundaries and but that's just Some that's some amount of conjecture, some amount of what I've read, but I think that it makes sense to try to keep your story simple and your storytelling simple if your technology is going to be so aggressive, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it really does. Well, it also, I think the technology being so aggressive enables you to be simpler in your storytelling when it is at that level of sophistication. Like when you're working at a green screen shoot at a lower budget level, it's such an assache. Whereas, like this isn't a green screen shoot. It's live. It's it feels like being on location. Only you can dial that location to be anywhere you want it to be. So you get back to that really bare bones feeling of I'm here, there are cameras. I'm talking to actors. I'm blocking scenes. I'm I'm refining moments. And you get to spend more of your energy thinking about that because you're not spending so much of your energy dealing with technical stuff because it's being sorted out live in front of your eyes.
1: It's also kind of awesome, like you referenced, that this is like a a throwback to like 1940s, 1950s or 1930s filmmaking where it's like it's all in L.A. And like there's like walking off of the stage is a guy in a Mandalorian suit and a character in a stormtrooper suit. And they're not out in the desert in Tunisia and they're not at, uh, God, I forget the name of the legendary studios in London. Pinewood? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and they're not doing it there. They're doing it. Uh, they're doing it in L.A. and yeah. they're doing it on the soundstage. And here's a funny thing we know now. It's just now this is becoming public knowledge. But I had caught word of this a while ago that Pedro Pascal is not in the suit most Guess. of the time. And I think what's funny about it is that so. This is Star Wars, right? That's sort of always been the case. They've had a lot of voice actors and then a lot of stuntmen or physical actors. Wait a minute.
0: James Earl Jones wasn't in the Vader suit?
1: <laughs> yeah, James Earl Jones was not in the Vader suit. Um, David Prowse was, who was also in Clockwork Orange, among other things. And uh, so Pedro Pascal's not in it. Here's the funny thing. I know a guy at um, Disney who's in business affairs and works on contracts in the TV department. And he told me that they didn't even cast Pascal until pretty deep into production. They had another person they were trying to work out a contract with that it didn't go. But like, obviously, Pedro Pascal is amazing. I love him. I think his voice, he does a great job. Uh, Loved him in Game of Thrones and Narcos. And uh, he came. So they'd already been shooting with the guy in the suit, right? And then they added in, of course, the voice later. But I don't know how many, I don't know if we're going to see his face or when we're going to see his face. But I think it's interesting that... Um, It's now becoming the story that he wasn't running around in that suit. I mean, it makes sense, right?
0: It it absolutely very much makes sense to me. All right, now we should move on to tech news, although I guess Mandalorian had some tech news. But let's talk about our tech news story this week. The tech news story for the week is Frame.io has come to iPad. So, a little bit of review. If you guys don't remember, Frame.io is what's called a work-in-progress review tool. Um, Like many companies, it's like many startups, uh, it is focused on solving a pain point. Pain point is something that's annoying about your life that you wish were better. Facebook tries to solve the pain point of staying connected to your friends and relatives and getting in political political arguments with them and, um, you know, uh, car companies. Getting
1: accurate news stories. Yeah,
0: that's they hope. (laughs) <laughs> uh car companies solve the pain point of how annoying it is to walk hundreds of miles to get to work and
1: uh or take the bus f-
0: yeah frame io solves the pain point of client notes Um, if you've ever been on like a 70 email long thread where people are like, I think the edit's too slow. I think the edit's too fast. I think this shot's too dark. I think this shot's too bright. Is this the right logo package? And it's like seven different people on the thread and you don't know who you're supposed to be listening to. And it just goes on forever. If you've ever been in that hell, which most filmmakers have frame, I always really designed to solve all of that. Uh, it is a really nice interface for your phone and your computer and now your iPad where you're watching and as soon as you start typing, it pauses the video and, and it like, makes your note connected to time code. And then it even integrates with all the editing platforms. So you, know, you can immediately like, bring it into Premiere or, or Resolve or Media Composer and, and all of the notes show up as markers in your timeline. So you can just work your way through them. And you know, there's all this cool stuff about Frame.io. But they never had a dedicated iPad app. And as much as you can run uh, iPhone apps on your iPad, a really dedicated iPad app is always going to be something uh, that offers benefits and functionality and just like looks nicer than a scaled up iPhone app. And now they finally have a dedicated iPad app. So this is interesting for a couple of reasons. The obvious reasons being they have a whole new drawing on the image functionality in the iPad app that's, that works with the Apple Pencil. So if you want to like, circle one person in a shot and say, brighten that person, it's going to be much easier to do. You don't have to type out a long note being like, don't brighten guy number four. It's guy number five. His Oompa Loompa isn't brighten." You know, it's like if you have a whole crowd of Oompa Loompas and you want to brighten one, it's way easier to just circle that one than it is to type out a note trying to explain which one it is. And so the ability to just draw on the image and and click OK is going to be something I think people really appreciate about the iPad app. And then simultaneously, you're going to have a split screen mode, which, you know, is nice if you want to check your edit against your original script or concept art or something like that. So you can have email or PDF or final cut open in one window and the cut open in another. And I think there's going to be some interesting uses there. This is also really interesting to me because, you know, I've been dragging my feet on buying an iPad Pro because, you know, they keep getting better and better and better. And so I keep waiting for the next generation because I'm like, maybe it'll be even better but I really feel like we're getting to the place where the iPad Pro is is becoming a very dominant. I think we're seeing a lot of work move off the MacBook Pro and onto the iPad Pro. I've been in a lot of meetings lately where, you know, 10 years ago, we all would have had our MacBook Pros open in front of us. And now about half the people or maybe even more than half the people have iPads propped up on a stand during the meeting for you know, looking up things and they need to look it up or taking notes or whatever. It's definitely moving in that direction. You're still not going to have the graphics power. You're still not going to like, if you didn't need to crunch dailies or anything like that or cut red raw, you're not, you're going to do that on your MacBook Pro. But it is interesting to see Frame.io launch an iPad Pro app as sort of dedicated functionality. Also this week, Shotput announced that they're integrating Frame.io directly. So if you don't know Shotput, it's for downloading software on set. I mean, downloading your footage on set. And now that has a Frame.io integration. So Frame.io is really on a tear.
1: Yeah, I I have experience using Frame.io. It, it is really amazing. It simplifies things tremendously. And I think that the movement to having its own dedicated iPad app means that people who aren't going to be locked in on a computer of some kind have access to giving notes I think it's going to make the note giving process a little bit easier because I imagine that it's really more for the person who needs to get notes to someone and less for the person who is receiving notes and implementing them although right doesn't that make sense like I think it's going to make the it seems to me like it's it's really for that end of the process which uh just seems like another way it's going to streamline to me. But that end of the process,
0: um, I mean, you're thinking as sort of the, the 360 creator, that other end of the process is sometimes directors. I mean, as a director, if I can't get in the – I mean, my personal preference is always to spend time in the room with the editor. But if I can't get in the room with the editor, even as a director, I end up watching stuff on Frame.io. Like it's definitely yeah. targeted at like cl- making things so e- so easy even a client could do it. Um, So it's definitely (laughs) targeted at the sort of, like, you're not in the room with me, big corporate remote marketing type clients who might not be tech savvy. It's definitely targeted at them, but you're seeing a whole lot of it. I mean, there was a story recently about, like, on Puff the Magic Dragon, David, uh, the director, David Lowry, was in New Zealand doing pickups, I think, and looking at edits and frame IO from his editor back in Texas and giving notes. Like, I think... I think you're seeing it. I mean, I I still think the best creative works in person.
1: What I was just gonna to add is like, look, we've you could be in bed and you could get an email because you're you're if you're in bed, you're staring at your phone, probably, and you might have an update and you might think, oh, because of a time change, I want to check, and maybe I can give notes and you can do that because your iPad might be nearby you too. You know, it, the, I think it just simplifies the. It simplifies the process of getting information back to someone without having to, okay, I got to go sit down on my computer or wait till I wake up in the morning at my workstation or like get all booted up into my, you know, work mindset. It just makes it like, yeah, I'll just lean over, grab this, give it a watch and give a note back real quick. Um, It's not just feature films, right? It's stuff like, you know, something for a corporate client or branded content or a short you're working on or you know, uh, something internal for No Film School, which we've done. You know, (laughs) there's all kinds of situations where you might want to get a note to someone quickly or at least check what the notes are um, without and then start thinking about it without having to be at your dedicated spot where you're working.
0: Up next, we have uh, Ask No Film School.
1: Our Ask No Film School this week is about film distribution, and I'll read the question from Victor, uh, and then we'll kind of dive into it because there's a lot, of, there's a few different things here, and I'm not sure we completely get the the scope of the question. But there's a lot to talk about. Hi, I've been listening to the podcast for quite a while now, and I was wondering if you could talk about distribution. I made a couple short films but have been struggling with distribution. My guess is that short films are harder to distribute than feature films, but I would like to know if you have any recommendations. I'm aware that the simplest way would be to upload to YouTube or Vimeo, but having cert- heard some interviews, I was wondering if it's possible for an indie filmmaker to get distribution on a major streaming platform such as Netflix and or in a movie theater? and if this is something you should consider in the initial stages of film production? Thanks for the question, Victor. I think that the first thing to say is just, if we're talking uh, only about shorts, let's let's focus this on short films and short films distribution, because I think that's what you're talking about. Obviously, feature film distribution, that's a whole other conversation. And uh, yes, of course, you can get it into theaters and Netflix. Um, but let's talk about shorts. Uh, I think... You know, in historically, there has not been a really a distribution platform for short films. It's not really a place where you, you're going to make money. It's more like a calling card, really, or an opportunity to do a proof of concept, which we talked about on this podcast last week. Or um, maybe it's for short festivals, which also serves as a calling card. And in a lot of our cases, gets us a meeting with a manager, an agent, or talent, or an opportunity to expand on the piece. Um, And I think then short films sort of morphed into, in the more internet age, there's the idea of virality, and then there was branded content, and then there was web series. So I think then you sort of start to see the idea of the short with legs, that maybe it can be monetized if you're working with a brand or if you're working on a series. But as for the standalone short film, I really don't know of any distributor that distributes shorts yet. And I'll hand off the baton to you, Charles, on that. So the reason why he said yet
0: is because (laughs) it seems like it's about to happen. Now it seemed like it was about to happen since the '90s. I remember at one point in the '90s being in a conversation. This was before meetings. Uh, I was just chatting with someone, but someone was like, "Oh my God, have you checked out Adam Films? They're putting films on the internet, and it's storytelling, and they're going to be <laughs> buying stuff, and there's a future." And you know, why are you moving to LA? Like everything's going to be anywhere. You can live in like Toledo and make movies in the web and all that. And like there was an idea that shorts in the were '90s gonna... was it like. Dial up, <laughs> I know, like right? Dial-up. Adam Films was a thing on dial up. Um, yeah. Adam Films was just before its time, really. I don't know if it still exists, mm. but it was a thing in the late '90s that, like, was just too early. But so what? Um, but what's interesting about this is that we have lately. St- so first off, one of your questions was: Should I think about distribution at the beginning? Um, the general argument is yes. My general argument is just make the thing you want to make. Make the thing you have to make and worry about distribution later. Maybe that's not great advice, but I think it's important artistic advice. But are shorts something that we're starting to see distribution? I don't think we're going to see shorts in theaters uh, as a standalone thing. I think we're going to see um, shorts before features, but we've always seen that from Pixar, and Disney does that sometimes. And that's something that like will always be at the studio level. Like Whoever's producing the feature will make the short or whatever. Um, and I don't think we're ever going to see a standalone shorts program in a theater because it doesn't have the same emotional pull to be like, I'm going to go all the way to the theater for 24 minutes. Like, it's just not just for the festi- same.
1: Only for festivals. Oh, yes, festivals. Absolutely. Festival. Absolutely. Thing, festival yeah. Th- absolutely. programs. Yeah.
0: But I do think we are starting to see online short content. I mean, apparently Amazon and Netflix have both picked up some short content recently at festivals. And, uh, you know, I have at least one friend whose short film is on Amazon, and she's made money off of the fact that it's on Amazon, and word-of-mouth spreads, and people pay the 3 or whatever, or it gets streamed as part of their Amazon Prime. So it is starting to be a thing, and, like, for instance, at um, the film school where I teach, Brooklyn College Fierstein, we have started trying to do... Um, you know, when I was in film school, everyone's like, you don't have to worry about deal memos with your crew because no one's ever going to make anything because there's no money in shorts, so don't worry about it. And so, you know, it fosters this exciting atmosphere of like, all right, well, we're all just working on these things to learn and grow and get better and make calling cards, and so it's okay that there's no deal memos or whatever. We, we haven't figured out what any of this looks like. We're all just going to pitch in and make shit because it's cool. But what's interesting is that we are now trying to really unpack and get ahead of the fact that, like, It seems like short films that are good enough are starting to actually find ways to make money because, frankly, attention spans are short. People like watching short things. And if it shows up algorithmically in a feed, if Amazon is like, hey, you just really enjoyed this, you know, series, do you want to watch this short next? You're going to get some people accidentally clicking on it, especially if you have good key art. Um, And that's going to lead to monetization and revenue now that we're seeing that and now that there's platforms where it could legitimately live and we're really breaking free of the like TV is 42 minute episodes and movies are 90 minutes to three hours. Like, and now like stories are just sort of, or four Um, stories are sort of going to the space of like, all right, well stories are just going to be the length they need to be. And like, if you think about YouTube, there's a lot of like, YouTube content of like people talking to camera. I do it too. But there's also a lot of short films on YouTube that have had millions of viewers.
1: And isn't TikTok short films and isn't Instagram short films? Like, I mean, aren't we getting to the point where there's short films in all these different places? And I know this isn't really to your question about distribution, but there's places people are creating short video content constantly and they are making some money doing it.
0: Well, not on TikTok yet. There was just a big New York Times article where TikTok was like, we're aware that we would like to, you know, figure out how to make sure our creators make money, and which is, in, which is them admitting that they haven't figured that out yet. But they would like to, um, which, like, you know, I'm, uh, it's a company worth billions of dollars and they haven't figured out monetization for creators. But YouTube has monetization for creators. Instagram has monetization for creators. There's a lot of platforms where it exists. I think that there are coming... I think there's going to be a lot more moments where short films can make money. On the flip side, it's still going to go through a lot of very traditional gatekeeping processes. It's still going to be, can you get into one of the top five festivals where industry goes? Can you get into, well, actually, it's not even top five. There's ten. Like Palm Springs Shorts Film Festival gets some industry because everybody likes a trip to Palm Springs. But it's really (laughs) L.A., Telluride, Sundance, Slamdance, Toronto – Tribeca, it's still those. Get your short into one of those and you stand some possibilities of actually getting attached to some sort of online distribution platform. As far as I know, none of them are currently accepting submissions. Like, I don't think you can, like, I don't think there's a submit button on Amazon's creation platform. I think they still create things in sort of a traditional fashion. But, uh, yeah, I think it's coming.
1: A couple interesting side things on this question that I just want to cover. Um, One is if you should consider distribution in stages of production. I think you said from a creative standpoint, you advise people not to. Um, I would just say that a lot of times, and this has been my experience at least, there will be trends happening in distribution that may influence some thinking around content creation, but there's a very good chance that those trends will change by the time you're done. So there can be a real, (laughs) there can be a real danger. I've lived this, trust me. There can be a real danger in listening to the voices of right now people are buying X because it takes a while, especially if you're in like a bootstrapping situation. I mean, it may take a while, it may not, but either way, things change like every five minutes now. So a while could be a month. Like a trend right now in what buyers are interested in may be completely vanished by the time you're done and you're back in the market. So it's a very dangerous game to play because you can't, uh, you can't. It's hard to ride that wave. It's better to make know, the thing you want to make. That. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really want to double down on that advice. I would also say that um, there was another point I wanted to make, which was that uh, you it, there's a Historically just an interesting I think side note to all of this which is that we talk about like Pixar makes the shorts and where short films belong and stuff and it really was a long time ago that a movie going experience included shorts because it also included a newsreel because it was essentially what TV is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, I think that that there is like, like that's where Bugs Bunny is from. He, or like Mickey Mouse, like they're from the short content that came with the movies. And we talked about uh, what's happening with like distributors or, or uh, studios buying movie theaters is kind of an interesting thing. I think you could see if like Amazon or Netflix owns theaters, they might, uh, some other content in, like that like I could see that happening because that's the origin of of some short content in the first place and then like just as a terrifying thought what if like Facebook buys a theater and puts a movie and puts a newsreel in <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what kind of future we're headed to but that's what the past is at least is that you would go to a theater and you would see all of that kind of package together because there wasn't TV at home
0: yeah I also want to – I want to just give the classic example I always give when people are like,
1: should I care about
0: distribution? So um, when I was in film school, vampire movies were dead. Like vampire movies were a thing that like if a friend had a vampire idea, everybody was like, no, you can't make vampire movies anymore because uh, I think in the 90s they tried to turn those super popular books, the vampire whatever, the uh, Diary of a Vampire whatever, uh, the Vampire Lestat – and the movies kind of bombed because they were a little too campy,
1: and so for look at, like, just the, look at the pictures from the premiere of Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and their long hair and Antonio yeah. Banderas, and you'll know why it flopped.
0: Yeah. So for 15 years, you couldn't make a vampire movie. So like, I remember being in classes, and you know, somebody would have like a vampire idea, and the teacher would be like, you know, I just don't know that that's going to sell. So maybe you should think about other other concepts. And then Twilight came out, and. You know, Twilight, she wrote, because she was into vampires, and she was like, fuck them if they can't take a joke. I I like vampires. Going to write a vampire thing. That person, you know, huge vampire hit. I guarantee you, and I feel like I even heard people bitching about this. I feel like I had friends who were assistants at the time who bitched about the sheer number of vampire spec scripts that came in, like, in the three or four months after Twilight sort of had its, you know, the huge box office moment is you have that, like, year of everybody trying to riff on a vampire thing. Um, But, you know, by the time the spec script is even done, because it can take six months to a year to write a good spec, by the time that's done, the town has already moved on to something else. Like, trying trying to catch the wave is never to the move. Do the thing you think is awesome, the same way the Twilight person thought Twilight was, you know, wanted to write about vampires.
1: And I would also just say on top of that, because I think it's an important thing to keep in mind, like, don't listen to them. Because... Like I listened, like somebody told me the day it was like the day after um uh Zombieland came out or something, or the weekend after they were like horror comedy, that's the thing. By the time we were <laughs> done with our horror Yeah, by the time we were done with our horror comedy, it was just not the thing anymore. It was like, yeah. it was like it was like that was a that I mean, whatever, we enjoyed the movie and we it was fun, but like that was a silly way to operate. Likewise, I tried to do uh, an alternate history World War Two thing. And all, every meeting, people were like, "You can't do that." They kept saying, "You cannot do that." Of course, you can. A lot of people have done it since with a lot of success. like like don't listen. like make the trend. don't don't follow yeah. the trend. yeah, like it's just like there n- that stuff is like you have to just like in one ear and not the other because it may be true today. it will not be true tomorrow.
0: Yeah, you just gotta do the thing you think is awesome and then do the thing you think is awesome again and then do the thing you think is awesome again. Uh, all right, everybody. So that has been this week's No Film School podcast. If you want more in-depth tech coverage, you can check out my other podcast, The Week in Film Tech, at theweekinfilmtech.com. Uh, you can check me out on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain. You can also check out all the articles I write at No Film School. I'm doing a bunch of reviews this month, uh, spending time with a bunch of lenses. There's a Sigma FP review coming. That camera's dope. And uh, yeah, the, the, those are the pluggables for me this week.
1: And I'm George gentleman editor-in-chief at No Film School. Uh, check us out, nofilmschool.com. You can follow us on Twitter at No Film School. Like our Facebook page. We post memes sometimes. Uh, we've got a couple of cool things coming up on the website. A big story with a colorist about how they do what they do and why and how they collaborate and what you can take away from it in your own work. We also have... I know it's early, but we have some Sundance stuff coming up, and we will around the time of Sundance, of course, but we know a filmmaker who's short got into Sundance, and who's going to be doing multiple pieces for us on how they got it together, how they got it in, what they, their shooting process was like, and it's going to be a very like hands-on, on-the-ground story, and of course, we'll, we'll catch up with them after their experience as a filmmaker at Sundance, which is always interesting. Um, and of course we have stuff with deacons coming up for 1917 and we'll have some stuff about shooting uncut gems which is an exciting release this week in new york and la and then it'll go nationwide on christmas just like 1917 so a lot of cool stuff happening on the site and keep listening to the podcast thanks so much